welcome to Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. In John 14.6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Our goal is to encourage everyone to grow in the Christian faith by anchoring themselves to the secure truth found in the inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word of God. They will say, where is this coming he promised? Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 4, New International Version Hello, I'm Victoria Kay. Welcome to Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. We're very glad to be with you today as we continue the series we started a few weeks ago on Anchored by Truth. We're calling that series, 10 Facts Every Christian Needs to Know. In the studio today, we have R.D. Fierro. R.D. is an author and the founder of Crystal Sea Books. He is the one picking the facts that we are covering in this series. So, R.D., we've covered four of the 10 facts so far in the series. How about if we do a quick refresher on those four facts? Well, before we get started, I'd also like to say greetings, hello, to all the Anchored by Truth listeners joining us here today. We're very grateful for all of those who have an interest in deepening their faith by thinking carefully about the Bible and the truth that the Bible contains. Well, the first fact that we covered on this series, this 10 Facts Every Christian Needs to Know series, was that science confirms that the universe and the earth are thousands of years old, not millions or billions of years old. And I know that some of these facts are going to be at odds with the narratives that circulate in popular culture today. But nevertheless, when you take a look at the evidence, you will find out that these facts are in fact just that. They're facts. They're true. Well, the second fact we covered was that the complexity of life makes it impossible for life to have arisen as the result of the random and chaotic collision of atoms and molecules. And that's even if you could explain the existence of the atoms and the molecules to begin with. And then fact number three is that there is solid scientific evidence that the tallest mountains on Earth right now were underwater at one time. And then the fourth fact that every Christian needs to know is that the fossil record does not support evolution, despite the contentions that are frequently made that it does. The fossil record, when looked at carefully and in detail, does not support evolution. So, briefly put, the first fact helps dispel the assertion that deep time is supported scientifically. Said slightly differently, the conventional idea that the universe and Earth are billions of years old does not possess the scientific support that is commonly supposed. The second fact dispels the idea that the living creatures could have risen by chance through the random, chaotic interaction of inanimate matter. The third fact points out that the Earth, as we see it today, reflects at least one previous catastrophic flood sometime in its history. And the fourth fact reveals that there is no direct scientific evidence that evolution, as conceived by Charles Darwin, ever occurred. Yes. And just to amplify on what we're talking about with that fourth fact, Dr. Pierre Grasset, who was one of the world's greatest living biologists, 
wrote a book called Evolution of Living Organisms. And in that book, Dr. Grasse said, I'm quoting now, the process of evolution is revealed only through fossil forms. A knowledge of paleontology is, therefore, a prerequisite. Only paleontology can provide the evidence of evolution and reveal its course or mechanisms. Close quote. In other words, Dr. Grasse plainly said that there is no scientific evidentiary mechanism that can make up for the lack of transitional forms in the fossil records. And then David Kitts, who's a professor of geology at the University of Oklahoma, said, and I quote, Evolution requires intermediate forms between species, and paleontology does not provide them. Close quote. These facts taken together really point out that so much of what is normally taken for granted in our culture, primarily narratives as you call them, really rests on an untenable foundation. You like to distinguish between primary and secondary narratives because you think that understanding that distinction is very important to Christians being able to be salt and light to the culture. What do you mean by primary and secondary narratives? Primary narratives are the overarching paradigms that are so embedded in the culture that we don't even notice them anymore. They're like the framed art prints on your wall. Initially, when you put them up, you look at them, you see them, you think about them. But as time goes by, you notice them less and less. And eventually, the only time you notice them is when a visitor comes in and makes a comment about them. Well, deep time, evolution, and uniformitarianism, among other narratives, they are now primary narratives in our culture. Only fools and those who are mentally or psychologically suspect would disagree with those narratives. Their narratives that we notice, the ones we pay attention to, such as the prominent social and political narratives, those are secondary narratives. Those include things like whether abortion is permissible, or whether same-sex marriage is acceptable, or whether increased government regulation and control over our daily lives is necessary. Those are the secondary narratives, and those secondary narratives emerge from and are dependent on the primary narratives. Why is that? Well, because most people need to believe that there is at least a modicum of consistency in their worldview, in their individual value set. See, before the appearance of those primary narratives, it was far more difficult for people to simply sidestep God and God's authority. But deep time and the Big Bang did away with the need to see God as the creator of the physical universe. Widespread belief in evolution did away with the need to have God as the author of life. Uniformitarianism replaced catastrophism as the dominant view for how the topographic features of the Earth were produced. Catastrophism was the belief that the physical features of our planet had largely been shaped by one or more catastrophes, such as the global flood we hear about in Genesis. Well, the appearance of uniformitarianism did away with the previously widespread narrative that God had not only created everything, but that he was also the administrator of justice. I mean, Genesis makes it pretty clear that the global flood was caused because of sin. Genesis chapter 6 verses 5 through 7 say, quote, the Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, 
I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created, and with them the animals, the birds, and the creatures that move along the ground, for I regret that I have made them." Right. So notice that the predominant result of these primary narratives, deep time, evolution, uniformitarianism, was to get rid of a perceived need for God. Before the general theory of evolution came around, even atheists admitted that they had no adequate way to explain the existence of the created order and life. Probably the most prominent atheist of the last three or four decades is Richard Dawkins. Even Dawkins has written that, quote, Although atheism might have been logically tenable before Darwin, Darwin made it possible to be an intellectually fulfilled atheist, unquote. In other words, Darwin gave a level of respectability to an idea that previously was widely and easily dismissed, the idea that living creatures did not need a creator to explain their existence. Before Darwin, it's not that evolutionary-type theories didn't exist, but they had no hold or approval in the popular culture. Yes. So, once our modern culture got rid of the commonsensical notion that God exists, well, then the postmodernists were free to redefine a value set that was free of God. And this included the redefinition of the family, of the suitability of sexual practices, of man's dominion over nature, and over the distinction among religious truth claims. Postmodernism, once it was supposedly free of the existence of God, was able to redefine anything that the culture found unacceptable that had been imposed on the culture as a result of God's values, as a result of God's commandments. What we did was replace a value system that was characterized by the Ten Commandments with a value system that was characterized by humanist principles. So in this Ten Facts series, we are challenging the truth of these primary narratives, aren't we? I think this is part of what Jesus meant when he said, quote, You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free, unquote. That's John chapter 8, verse 32. So what truth do we want to focus on today? What is fact five of the ten facts every Christian needs to know? Well, fact five of this ten fact series is that the conventional dates assigned to the age of the earth and the universe do not possess the scientific support that is normally presumed. What you're saying is that when we hear on various TV shows and internet videos that the universe is 14.5 billion years old and the Earth is 4.5 billion years old, there is really very little, if any, scientific support for assigning those dates. I think you better elaborate on what you're thinking. Well, in the first fact of this series, we began to disabuse the notion of deep time by citing three lines of evidence that show that the Earth and the universe are thousands of years old, not billions. And then in our second episode of this series, we added a fourth line of evidence. And those episodes are available on our website, crystalseabooks.com, or their favorite podcast app for anyone who wants to review them. Well, today, rather than focusing on the evidence that the Earth is, quote, young, I want to focus on the problems associated with the way that conventional science has assigned those long dates. And so to begin with, we need to recognize that there is no way for scientists or anyone to, quote, measure the age of the Earth and the universe. Even though that idea circulates very widely in our culture, We think that scientists can somehow measure or date accurately the age of the Earth and universe. Well, no scientist has ever measured the age of the universe. 
They can't do it because it's impossible to measure age. The age of events that extend beyond our recording ability are always calculated. They are not measured. What do you mean that the ages are calculated? Well, there are three and only three ways of determining the age of anything. If we have the right records, we can simply go to the records and determine how much time has passed between the start of an event and the end of an event. And that's how we usually determine our own age. We know our birth date and the current year, and we simply subtract one date from the other. For some of you, that's getting harder day by day. Right. And at my age, counting on fingers and toes doesn't cut it anymore. Well, going to the records to determine the age of something will work, provided we have reliable records. Well, another way of determining age is to compare something of an unknown age with something of a known age and see how those two things compare. An example of this approach might be if a doctor was trying to determine the age of a child and didn't have the child's records or history. The doctor can tell how tall the child is, how much they weigh, the kind of teeth the child possesses, etc. Doctors have good ideas of how fast children normally develop and so can probably make a reasonably accurate determination of a child's age based on their stage of development. But this kind of an approach assumes that the child is about average and didn't have any conditions that affected their growth and development. These assumptions might be wrong and would produce an incorrect age. The comparative approach is often used and works well in archaeology. Archaeologists can compare a new find from a new site and see whether there are any existing artifacts that resemble the new find. If we know that a particular piece of pottery came from the 1st century AD in Israel, and we find an unknown piece of pottery, we can compare the two and see if the new piece looks similar to the previously identified artifact. But again, this assumes that the first artifact was dated correctly. Right. And then the third way of determining age is by measuring the rate of some process and the amount of product that that process produces and then working out how long it would take to produce that amount of product at the rate of production. Said slightly differently, the age is calculated by determining or knowing the rate of change associated with the process and then using that rate and the change in the state of an object or a creature, using the rate and the change to infer the passage of time. And this process can be very accurate. I mean, for instance, forensic scientists will often use that kind of an approach when they're trying to figure out how long it's been since someone died. The forensic scientists may know, for instance, that the presence of certain stages of insects around a dead body can reveal how long it's been since that death occurred. This process approach can also be accurate when we know with certainty the starting nature of the object or element that we are dating and that there have not been any material changes either in the rate of change of the process or there have not been the introduction of any external contaminants. Unfortunately, using processes and rates of change, especially the most popular one for dating the age of the Earth, which is radioactive decay, using processes and rates, that's the most common way scientists try to go about dating the age of the rocks and the Earth. And that is, of course, where uncertainty enters the picture. For example, radioactive uranium naturally decays into lead. Scientists can measure how fast this is happening now. They can then measure how much lead is present in a rock and calculate how long it would take for uranium decay to produce that much lead. 
But in making this calculation, the scientist is making several assumptions. They must assume that all the lead came from the uranium, that no uranium or lead entered or left the rock since it was formed, and that the rate of decay of the uranium has remained constant. All these assumptions are unprovable, and some are unreasonable. What this example illustrates is that using process and rate change to calculate the age of the Earth must, by necessity, involve making lots of unprovable assumptions. And this weakness adheres to radioactive determined ages, regardless of the scientific sophistication involved in actually taking measurements. Right. We have no way of knowing what the initial state of that rock was when it was produced because no one was there. No one could have been there. So no one was there to look at that rock at the time it was formed and tell us what the composition of that rock was. But what we do know is that there have been some pretty spectacular errors made in dating rocks when we do know when the rock was formed. Ah, you're thinking about one of your favorite examples of the rocks that were taken from the Mount St. Helens volcano. Like all erupting volcanoes, it created a great deal of new rock, and the accumulating rock has formed a fairly large dome. The current dome is three-quarters of a mile long and 1,100 feet high. The current dome started growing after the volcano's last explosive eruption on October 17, 1980. There were 17 so-called dome-building eruptions that stretched from October 18, 1980 to October 26, 1986. A thick, pasty lava oozed out of the volcano vent like toothpaste from a tube, and because the kind of lava that was oozing, it was too thick to flow very far. It simply piled up around the vent, forming the mountain-like dome. There's a good article about the dating of the rocks from Mount St. Helens on creation.com, the website for Creation Ministries International. Yes. That article points out that one geologist sent samples of the rocks formed during the eruption and some mineral concentrates to a lab, and the lab was asked to date the age of the rock and the mineral concentrates. Well, when the lab dated the rock and the samples, the dates that were assigned to that rock and those samples were about 350,000 years old for the rock, and they were close to 2.8 million years old for the mineral concentrates. Now, the dating method that was used for the Mount St. Helens material was the potassium-argon method, and that's widely used in geological circles. It's based on the fact that potassium-40, which is an isotope of the element potassium, spontaneously decays into argon-40, and that's an isotope of the element argon. And this process proceeds very slowly at a known rate, and it has a half-life of about 1.3 billion years. In other words, it would take around 1.3 billion years for one gram of potassium-40 to theoretically decay to the point that only one half a gram of that potassium-40 was left. So using this method, the lab that was assigning the dates assigned dates of a few hundred thousand years old to over two and a half million years old. But we know that all the samples that were being dated had been formed between 1980 and 1986 right? Right. And this example illustrates the problems with using radioactive decay processes to assign dates to rocks or geological material. Contrary to what is generally believed, it's not just a matter of measuring the amount of potassium-40 and measuring the amount of argon-40 in a volcanic rock sample of unknown age and calculating a date. To be accurate, we would need to know the history of the rock. For example, 
we need to know how much daughter element was present in the rock when it was initially formed. And in most situations, we don't know that. And since we can't measure the proportions of the parent and the daughter elements in the rock when it was formed, scientists have to make assumptions. They have to guess. Well, it's routinely assumed that there was no argon present initially in the rock. But even if we knew the starting proportions, we still wouldn't be clear of doubt because we would also need to know whether potassium-40 or argon-40 has leaked into or out of the rock since the time it was formed. Again, there is no way of knowing that, so assumptions have to be made. And it is routinely assumed that no leakage has occurred. Well, it's only after these assumptions are made that we can calculate the, quote, age for the rock. And when this is done, the age of most rocks that is calculated in this way is usually going to be pretty high, often very large, often in the millions of years. And this example of errant dating of recently formed rocks is not limited to Mount St. Helens. In his book, The Greatest Hoax on Earth, Dr. Jonathan Sarfati cites a similar example of misdated rocks from a New Zealand volcano. The volcano erupted in 1949, 1954, and 1975, but the ages assigned by potassium argon dating range from 250,000 years old to 3.5 million years old. Now, the point of this discussion is not to cast aspersions on science or scientists, but what we do want to do is illustrate the limitations that all observers face when they're trying to make determinations about what happened in the distant past. All any observer can do is to examine the current evidence, the evidence before them, and then apply analysis to decide what that evidence tells them. Now, here in Anchored by Truth, we are very well aware that the vast majority of scientists would disagree with what we're talking about here today. But truth is not determined by majority opinion. It is determined by correspondence to reality. And the reality is that no one alive on planet Earth was present when the Earth was formed. But we do have eyewitness testimony that comes to us from one source, don't we? The Bible gives us a report of the creation of the earth and the universe. So the way biblical creationists determine the age of the earth is by going to that record and seeing what it says. But, as we mentioned earlier, for us to rely on a record, we must be sure that the record is accurate. But that is what we do on Anchored by Truth. We continuously present evidence that supports the reliability and authenticity of Scripture. Exactly. And the fact that we are discussing today that the conventional dates assigned to the age of the Earth and the universe do not possess the scientific support that is normally presumed, it's simply that. It's a fact. And despite the lengthy presentations that are made about the scientific method behind making dating determinations, the simple fact is that all those defenses talk a lot about methodology and very little about underlying assumptions. But the assumptions are inescapable. And as we've illustrated, the person assigning the dates must make those assumptions because without those assumptions, they cannot apply their methodology. And those assumptions that they are making are unprovable. Not only are the assumptions behind radiometric dating unprovable, but their most basic assumption, uniformitarianism, is called into question by the possibility of a global flood. A flood of the type described in Genesis would have affected every aspect of the Earth, including its topography and geology. So if the Genesis flood occurred, and we strongly believe that science supports that it did, 
then uniformitarianism has to be dismissed as a starting point. Yes, and that was the point of us using the opening scripture from Second Peter that we did today. 2,000 years ago, the Apostle Peter foresaw the day when critics were going to begin to mock the idea that Christ was going to return to this earth. And the critics were going to say, and I'm paraphrasing, well, that's just silly. Everything is going on around us just the way it always has. Well, what Peter prophesied, we now see around us every day. So our fifth fact reinforces our first fact. The first fact is that there is affirmative evidence, such as lunar recession, that shows that the age of Earth is very unlikely to be in the billions of years. The fact we discussed today makes the same point from the opposite side. The so-called science that is used to assign billions of years dates for the Earth and the universe rests on inescapable and unprovable assumptions. The two facts work together to disperse the legitimacy of the conventional view about the age of the Earth. Exactly. Empirical observations of our Earth cast a great deal of doubt on the conventional view of the date of the Earth and the universe. Now, biblical creationists offer a competing view. So the question then is, which view is better supported by the evidence and whether the observer is going to follow the evidence? Or whether they're going to adhere to their starting axioms, even when those axioms are at odds with the evidence. Yes. Now, I understand that when listeners first encounter these kinds of choices, it can be startling and even disturbing. I mean, we all read the high school and college science texts with the thick covers and the full cover graphics that assured us that the Earth is billions and millions and hundreds of millions of years old. And we all read those textbooks that said that there is overwhelming evidence that demonstrates that. But the reality of it is that as you probe beneath the surface, you find out that most of those science textbooks only presented one side of the argument. They were very selective about the evidence that they presented. They had to be. If they had featured or even given time to a competing alternative explanation, they would never have been published. And that's why we're doing this 10 Facts Every Christian Needs to Know series. We want to draw people's attention to the evidence for the alternative, and then we invite our listeners to go and investigate these subjects further on their own. Well, sadly, that's not the kind of invitation that is issued very often in the chemistry or physics or geology classrooms in schools or colleges that are spread across this nation. Well, we don't dwell too much on the political commentary except to say this. As you pointed out, the social narratives that circulate today depend on certain underlying primary narratives. And for over 150 years, one of those primary narratives has been that science has proven that our world and universe can exist just fine without God. But our hearts tell us this isn't true. And when we start taking a hard look at the available evidence, our brains confirm what our hearts already knew. This sounds like a great time to go to the Lord in prayer. Today, let's listen to a prayer for people and institutions that oversee our children's education, the school boards. A prayer for school boards. All wise and everlasting Father, we glorify your name, for you alone are worthy to receive worship and praise as the one true God. We thank you, Father, for the privilege of coming into your presence. We do so with glad hearts and earnest hope 
Lord, we pray that you would be in our midst this day as we ask for special blessings for our school board. Theirs is the important work of providing guidance to all the schools and learning centers in our community. As issues arise before the board, please help the members to be faithful and diligent to their calling. Grant them wisdom in their deliberations and decision-making. Help them to always focus on the genuine needs of students and schools. Inspire them to be trustworthy stewards of the authority and responsibility that has been placed in their hands. Make your manifest presence felt in their meetings and ensure that they are never satisfied with mediocrity. Illuminate their minds with the brilliance of your word. Encourage them and do not let them grow weary in their tasks. We ask all this with the confidence that you hear our prayers for the sake of your Holy Son. It is in his incomparable name that we pray and give thanks. Amen. We hope you'll be with us next time, and we hope you'll take some time to encourage some friends to tune in also, or listen to the podcast version of this show. If you'd like to hear more, try out crystalcbooks.com, where... We're not perfect, but our boss is.